there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. As I said, we have nothing but what we have received, and so obviously what we give is what we have received. And I would like to put that under four headings, and I'll give you all four of them, and then we'll try to go through them. What we give, number one, is all that I am. Number two is all that I have. You can put ditto marks and speed up the, the note-taking. Number three, all that I do. And number four, all that I suffer. All that I am, all that I have, all that I do, and all that I suffer. When I was a senior in college, it was our custom to get autographs in our yearbooks. I don't know whether kids still do that nowadays or even whether they have yearbooks in colleges. But the junior class would put out a yearbook which had everybody's picture in it and we would race around and try to get everyone to sign their pictures with an autograph. And I was particularly eager and very um, scared to try to get Jim Elliott's autograph. He was a very popular, very big man on campus. We used to call him a BMOC, big man on campus, or BTO, a big time operator, and I was just a teeny weeny operator. <laughs> and I'm sure there were a lot of girls wanting to get Jim's autograph because he was a mysterious person and never dated. And I had a secret hope that he would not only put his name, but something else in my book. I had no reason at all to imagine that he was interested in me or had ever looked at me twice. But I couldn't help hoping, and so when I handed him my book, it was with great delight that I noticed that he did put something underneath the signature, but I couldn't see what it was right away. He shut the book, handed it back to me. I quickly found the place, discovered that he had written a scripture verse, 2 Timothy 2.4. Now, how long, girls, do you think it took me to get back <laughs> to the dormitory? to look up the verse. This is what I found. A soldier on active service will not become entangled in civilian affairs. <laughs> he must be wholly at his commanding officer's disposal. And I had liked everything I knew about Jim Elliott up to that point, and I liked this more than anything else, even though in a in a sense, my heart sort of sank because I felt he was giving me a message which I didn't particularly want to hear. He was also telling me something which to me was more important than anything else that I knew about him, which was that he had made a final decision, an irrevocable choice that Jesus Christ was Lord of his life. He was his commanding officer, and he was at his disposal, not anyone else's. And I think that sums up what a disciple is supposed to do. We are meant to be 
at his disposal, as Mary was. She received the given, which was this tremendous privilege of laying down her life, as it were, to become somebody's mother. And every time a woman becomes a mother, she begins to learn what sacrifice is about if she's never learned it before. Because the life of a mother is endless self-giving, isn't it? It's my life for yours. What is the principle of the cross? My life for yours. Jesus gave his life in order that you and I might live. And he says, if, in 1 John 3.16, we read, if Christ laid down his life for us, we in our turn must lay down our lives for each other. So when I surrender all that I have to God, then I am at his disposal for his use. But that is the route to joy. This question that we had just a moment ago, if I surrender to God, is he going to bring all kinds of terrible trials into my life? What I almost despair sometimes of getting across is that whatever God brings into your life, ultimately is going to be turned into good and joy. Do you know that little song, something beautiful, something good? All my confusions he understood. All I had to offer him was what? Brokenness and strife. But he made something beautiful of my life. So there is never a reason to be scared. I turn over to him all that I am, and he can do anything he wants with it. But what does he want to do? What does he want to do? He wants our joy and our bliss and our fulfillment because he loves us. What do you want for your children? Anything less than joy and bliss and fulfillment? Certainly not, because you love them. And so it is not with trepidation and fear and grudging that I turn over my life to God, but it is with exuberance, with joy, with hope, with confidence that he knows how to run things a whole lot better than I do. Now, when you come right down to it, isn't it absolutely ridiculous that we can even for a moment imagine that we really could do a better job? He who runs the gal galaxies and the molecular dance that scientists tell us is taking place every second in every cell of every creature in the universe, he runs that. He is the god of the invisible and he is the god of the stupendous. But somehow or other we think he really can't run my life, not as well as I can. So I'm going to do my thing. Absurd, isn't it? But there we are. Paul said, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. But he doesn't say that just out of a vacuum. He has just been talking in, verse, in chapter 11, and you know that the chapter breaks are not divinely inspired. They were put in afterwards. But Paul says in Romans 11, Oh, 
depth of wealth, wisdom, and knowledge in God, how unsearchable his judgments, how untraceable his ways, who knows the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, who has ever made a gift to him to receive a gift in return, source, guide, and goal of all that is, to him be glory forever. Amen. Therefore, my brothers, I implore you by God's mercy to offer your very selves to him, a living sacrifice. Who has ever made a gift to him, says Paul, in the next breath, he's saying, make him a gift. But what do I have to offer? Nothing except everything, all that I am. What is it that makes up this thing that I call I? Myself, my spirit, my will, my mind, my emotions, my personality, my temperament. That is what I'm to present. I present this body, which is a physical, visible, tangible thing, but it is an act of spiritual worship. We present our bodies a living sacrifice. So what we give to God is the, the first thing we start with is this body, which contains all that we are. The second thing is all that I have. Now what do I have? Well, I have a house to live in, and I have work to do, and I have family to love, and I have troubles and trials and sins and tastes and preferences and fears and just a very long list of things that I have. Now can you handle all that? We are to turn it over to him. I give this to him. The story is told of a hermit who forsake, forsook the whole world, left his home and his family and his job and everything that he possessed, all his money, went out into a cave in the desert to pour himself out in adoration to God. And when he got to the cave, the devil was there to meet him. And every day the devil tormented him. And finally the man, the hermit, prayed to God and he said, Lord, I have given you everything. Why don't you take away this torment? And the Lord said, you haven't given me everything. And so the hermit went through all the long list of things that he had given up. And God said, there is still one thing that you haven't given. What is that, Lord? Your sins. I don't know what you may be cherishing deep in your heart that you will not surrender to God. But it might be the sin of resentment against somebody who has done something which seems unforgivable. And that thing becomes like a gnawing in your soul. It becomes a the book of Hebrews calls a bit a root of bitterness which will poison other people. Do you have such a root in your heart? Will you turn it over to him who can handle it? Will you get down on your knees and say, Lord, from this point on I reject all wrong reactions to what that person did to me?
I forgive him or her in Jesus' name. And I will receive your grace from now on. And if those thoughts arise again, turn them over to Jesus again. And if that person doesn't want to hear from you or is not even aware that you've got that root of bitterness in your heart, doesn't know that you've been hating him for years, then you don't need to go to that person and tell him all this kind of thing which is going to make that person feel very bad. I've had people come and confess bitterness against me that I didn't know anything about and I thought, well now that's kind of a sneaky way of trying to extort an apology from me, which I don't think we need to do. So that there are times when you need to get things out in the open when both of you know that it went on. There are other times when you don't, so ask God for wisdom about that. But all that I have belongs to God. That includes my money, my time, my energies, my sins, my bitterness. It has to be surrendered. Have you ever been bitter against God himself? Been mad at God for something he did to you? Not realizing that he did it out of love, just as a little child doesn't begin to understand that a spanking is from love? Will you begin this afternoon to believe in his love and to receive it with both hands and say, yes, Lord, I'll take it? Forgive me for my bitterness. Love thinks no evil about the beloved. Do you think evil about God? Number three, we offer to him all that we do. And again, some of you may feel envious of what other people do. And you think, but here I am scrubbing floors. Here I've got this crummy job that nobody else in the world wants to do, and I'm stuck with it. And you can't get up in the morning eager and joyful and think, great, I get to do what I want to do today. And so I would say to you that if you can't do what you like, learn to like what you do. And you know, I have a tip for you. It really does work. If you start thanking God, for this work of whatever kind. It may be the lowest, humblest, most invisible job that nobody's ever going to notice as long as you do it, and the whole world will notice if you don't do it. That's what housework is, isn't it? <laughs> Nobody ever notices that you did it, but they sure did notice it when you didn't. <laughs> whatever your work may be that you that is really not according to your taste and preferences, if you start saying, thank you, Lord, if this is what you want me to do, I will do it with all my heart, with a song and with rejoicing, and I will say, thank you, Lord, it's going to change your attitude toward that job. And again, to go back to the verse that I quoted in my second talk, Jesus said, if you do it for one of the least of these, you've done it for me. And they said to him, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry? When did we ever see you thirsty? When did we ever come to visit you in prison? When did we see you naked? He said, whatever you did for them, you did for me. Whatever you refuse to do for them, you refuse to do for me. If you iron that shirt for Jesus, 
it'll make a difference. If you clean that bathroom or make that bed or set that table or cook that meal for Jesus, he accepts it, he receives it as an offering of love. A woman's offering is all that she is, all that she has, and all that she does. It makes a difference in the way that I do things, if I do them for Jesus. I'm tempted to be sloppy and a little bit careless and to do the things sort of halfway. And all of a sudden I remember, this is not just for me, it's not just for Lars, he won't notice whether I really do this thing right or not. But Jesus will notice it. When I sit down at my desk to do the desk work that I have to do, sometimes I just put my hands on the computer or the typewriter and I say, Lord, this work now, this morning, is for you. And I can't pray that prayer without being conscientious and faithful and thorough in doing that work. The gospel is full of paradoxes. We surrender in order to be victorious. We lose in order to gain. We lay down our lives in order to experience the life of Jesus in these mortal bodies. Back to that fourth chapter of Second Corinthians. It is for your sake that, excuse me, um, where am I? Verse 11, continually while still alive, we are being surrendered into the hands of death. We all have little things that cut across our personal preferences. That is a surrender into the hands of death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in this mortal body of ours. Life comes out of death, doesn't it? Every time you sit down to the table, you're eating because something died, unless you're drinking a glass of milk and eating an egg. The vegetables, the fruit, the meat, they're all living things that have to die in order for you and I to live. Life comes out of death, a paradox. Gain comes out of loss. Something beautiful comes out of something broken. Fulfillment, strangely enough, comes from sacrifice. The world is telling us, don't do that dirty job if you're a housewife or the mother of little kids, you know, if you can possibly get out of it and get somebody else to do it. You go out and do something interesting, do something fulfilling. But I would say to you this afternoon that fulfillment is not a goal to be achieved, as the world would tell you. It is the byproduct of sacrifice. It is something that God gives you in a mysterious way that the world will never understand. He laid down his life for me. I am to lay down my life for him. But is that a terrible thing? It's the route to glory. It's the road to joy. It's the pathway to Canaan, the land of perfect promise. So all that I do is my offering. And number four, all that I suffer. 
And this, to me, has been a transforming truth in my life. It was when my second husband was dying of cancer, and I felt fear such as I had never experienced in my life. Not for myself, of course, but for him. I was not terrified of losing him through death because I had already been through that valley and I knew that you never go through it alone. Death was not the worst possibility, but as all of you know who have watched somebody die of cancer, there are a whole lot of dreadful things that happen before death. The mutilation and the horror and the pain and the screaming and all of those terrible things. And the doctors were predicting dreadful treatments that they were going to do to him. I couldn't stand it. I would wake at night just almost in a cold sweat, thinking, Lord, if you take him, that would be fine. But to go through that, I cannot face. And there would be times when I felt as if I had nothing to offer whatsoever to God, except my pain, my vicarious pain for my husband. And it came to me then, the verse in the Psalms, the sacrifices of God are a broken heart, a broken and a contrite heart he will not despise. So if all you have to offer is a broken heart, that's what you offer. In the simplest way, get down on your knees, lift up your hands and say, Lord, take it. And I began in a very halting, hesitating, rudimentary way to begin to learn this stupendous truth that everything is transformable, even my suffering. When I hear the stories that other people tell me and write to me, I feel as if I've never had a problem in my life. I don't mean for a moment to make much of my own suffering because it's nothing, I'm sure, compared to what many of you have been through. It just happened to be the road that God took me because God knew that that was the road I needed to go. But even in my smaller darkness, I've, no, I've learned, I've begun to learn, I'm still learning, to turn that over to him and ask him to transform it. God is in the business of transforming bad things into good things, darkness into light, sin into righteousness, loss into gain, ashes into beauty, mourning into the oil of joy, heaviness into the garment of praise. I've been making a list in the front of my Bible of these transforming, these um, transfigurations throughout Scripture, exchanges, you might call them. You'd be amazed at how many there are. Myrtles for thorns, it goes on and on and on. There are just dozens of them in Scripture. That is what God does. But I have something that I have to do first, and that is to make that offering. I don't know what your story is this afternoon. I don't know what that thing may be that's breaking your heart, emptying your house or your hands or your life. The thing which you feel you cannot stand.
Will you offer it? Will you make it an offering to Jesus Christ, believing that he really does know how to turn that into something beautiful? I ask you to do that in a simple act of faith. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And here we are in paradoxes. It's just as if he's contradicting himself back and forth, isn't it? I am crucified. That means I'm dead. Nevertheless, I'm alive. Yet it's not me, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life which I live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I think Paul is just stretching his tremendous intellect to its bursting limits to try to describe this paradox, this strange contradiction. But this is what the Christian life is about. I come to him helpless out of my bondage, sorrow, and night. Jesus, I come into thy freedom, gladness, and light. From bondage to freedom, from darkness to light, from joy to sorrow, from sorrow to joy. That's what it's about. I come to him, and I have nothing to offer except everything. Nothing to give him except everything that he's given to me. All that I am, all that I have, all that I do, and all that I suffer. And you can begin, ladies, this afternoon to think of the, the thing in your life which it doesn't look as though God is going to change. It's not going to go away. He's not going to solve the problem. I'm not going to tell you that God's going to answer all your prayers the way you want them answered before supper tonight. I'm not going to tell you that you have a right to expect a miracle because you do not necessarily have a right to expect the kind of miracle that the preachers who tell you that are really mean. You know, he, he can make the sun stand still and he can turn water into wine, but he might not necessarily do that for you any more than he worked a miracle to get John the Baptist out of the prison. He didn't do it, did he? And when Paul said, would you please take away this thorn in my flesh, what was God's answer? My grace is all you need. I hear a preacher say on the radio or TV, you need a miracle. Well, who am I to tell God what I need? I can tell him what I need. We are told that we can bring our needs to God in earnest and thankful prayer. But the bottom line is, Lord, it looks to me as though I need this pretty bad, but you know better than I do. You give me what you think I need. So you can bring that thing which is suffering in your life and make it material for sacrifice. Do you understand what I'm saying? It becomes something to offer. And if you feel just like the disciples felt when the little boy brought his lunch for that huge mob of people, and they said, what is the good of that for such a crowd? If you think, Lord, what can you ever make of this collection that I'm bringing you? Your part is obedience. The results are God's. Trust him. Leave it with him. The greatest offering you can bring him is trust, which comes from love, 
which is expressed in obedience. Love and trust and obedience are three things that are absolutely inseparable. God bless you. I'm going to go into a few more questions. Two people asked, please give the salvation message clearly. I'm going to simply give you three, well, a few verses from Romans chapter 3. The law and the prophets bear witness to God's justice. It is God's way of righting wrong. This is verse 22, Romans 3. Effective through faith in Christ. For all who have such faith, all without distinction. The thing that makes salvation effective is faith. Verse 23, for all alike have sinned and are deprived of the divine splendor. And all are justified, made righteous by God's free grace alone through his act of liberation in the person of Jesus Christ. For God designed him to be the means of taking away sin by his sacrificial death, effective through faith. God meant by this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance he had overlooked the sins of the past, to demonstrate his justice now in the present, showing that he is himself just and also justifies or makes righteous anybody who puts his faith in him. Salvation is so simple that we sometimes reject it. We come and we say, Lord, here I am. Please take me. It's an act of surrender. We put our trust in him and he accepts us. I wanted to read a wonderful letter that I thought was one of these long, long questions I couldn't answer, and I read it, and here's what she says. Although the Lord has blessed you with so much from the lovely family he placed you in to be raised, many of the same results the Lord has blessed me with, although my family was entirely different. We were abused sexually and physically and emotionally, at least a doctor would say, and, that, and we had very little joy within our home. But through these circumstances, entirely different from yours, how the Lord has blessed me with his teachings and love and mercy. I had to trust in him and learn obedience and love from him. And I have always considered all that has happened, the pain, the afflictions, healed by him into what is always better than before. I know that what awaits us moment to moment is so much more wonderful than what we have given up just too wonderful to imagine. And I thought, if there are those sitting there saying, well, it's all very well for Elizabeth Elliot to talk about that stuff, I thought it would be a good idea for you to hear from somebody else. I try being disciplined in prayer and Bible study and also having order in my home and getting things looking nice, but it doesn't seem like there's enough time in the day with a young family. Let me say that there is always time to do the will of God. Nobody ever fails to do the will of God from lack of time. You submit your agenda to God and ask him to help you do what he wants you to do. 
And if you pray that in all sincerity and humility, I believe God answers the prayer so that at the end of the day, instead of whipping yourself because you didn't get everything that was on your list done, thank the Lord that he did answer your prayer to help you to do what he wanted you to do. The same person says, then when I'm pregnant, I get behind because I'm either sick at first or need more sleep. It's hard to get up early to spend time with the Lord or to make up sleep time later. I guess this is getting long, but how do you juggle all the family relationships, responsibilities, and ministry, keeping as a priority a relationship with the Lord? You could not have my greater sympathy. I am extremely sympathetic especially because my own daughter is in the midst of raising a very young family. Her children are ages 10, 8, 6, 3, and 1. And she has told me exactly the same story. But she has herself told me that she is honest in really wanting to spend time with God. And God knows the literal impossibility of a young mother having a schedule which cannot be interrupted. There is no way in the world God knows that. And so Valerie has asked the Lord to, if, it, if it's impossible for her to get up at 5 o'clock, which is her normal rule, that he would give her some other time. Maybe she's been up from, say, 1 to 4 with a fussy child or a sick child. Or maybe she's been nursing the baby or something, and just at 5 o'clock the child goes to sleep, so it's the only chance Val has to get some sleep, so she goes to sleep instead of having her devotions in. She said, you know, Mama, it's really been wonderful to see how the Lord has done something utterly unexpected sometimes to enable me to make up that time. Maybe all the children took a nap when she didn't expect them to, or somebody came over and took the children off on an outing. And it doesn't always happen, and if it doesn't happen, don't worry about it. Leave it with God. Your life is in His hands. He knows all about the exigencies and the vicissitudes of a young mother's life. What advice do you give to a parent who has been in a habit of repeating themselves and not like the carousel mother, she says, and not implemented their threats? The habit has been for five years or more. How can that child learn that there is a change and that now you will go forth with the rule? Okay, I would sit that five-year-old down this afternoon, if you see him, <laughs> and I would say, Mommy has learned something today. <laughs> Did you know that Mommy could learn things too? And I have been making some mistakes. And from now on, I am going to speak to you once. Johnny, did you hear what I said? I am going to speak once. And I expect you to do what I say. Now be sure that you do this with calmness and quietness and in a place where he's not distracted. You look him straight in the eye, and I think that's one of the most important things. Be sure that you have the child's attention. It's no good, as I see the poor harried mothers doing in the grocery store, saying, put that back. I said, put that back, put that back. And then she's <laughs> over here, and the kid is taking the candy off the rack, which is right next to the cashier. You know, it's just demons that arrange things like that. <laughs> she doesn't have his attention. He knows that she's trying to get the money out of her purse and take care of the screaming infant in the cart. You have to get his attention. So this important lesson, which this mother is asking about, 
Choose a time, as my friend Barb did with little Katie. Sit down and say, okay, from now on, I want you to understand. And the very next time that you give the child a command, you wait. Let him see that you are watching what he's doing. Just nail him with your gaze, if you can. Maybe he's not looking at you. But if he disobeys, if he doesn't do what you say, then you get the switch or you tell him that he has to go to his room. You punish him in some way, not violently or anything and not with anger. And there have been several people asking the question about punishing. Does it always have to be a spanking? No, certainly not. And as my daughter tells me, and I only had one child, you know, so I don't know all these things, but she's got five and you, she deals differently with the children. She says, with one child, you can beat the tar out of them and it never makes any difference. And I know that's the way I was. My mother said that I never cried. Well, that's not very smart. You know, if you're getting a spanking, the sooner you scream, <laughs> the fewer licks you're going to get. But I was too proud to cry. I just would not allow anybody to think that I was hurt. So you can think of ways, take away the dessert, make them go to bed, make them sit on a chair, no television, no ice cream, whatever. But make very plain ahead of time what it's going to be. You're going to have to think about this. Maybe you need to pray about it. Maybe you need to talk to your husband about it and then agree on what it's going to be. But a switch is language that a small child very well understands. Don't try to reason with a two-year-old. He understands the switch. <laughs> a Christian woman needs to be open and flexible when ministering to others, and at times it's, that seems to conflict with an ordered, disciplined life. Could you note how this has changed when in different stages of your life? I'm glad for the question because I certainly don't want anyone to think that when I speak of an ordered and a disciplined life, it means that you have a regimented schedule that cannot be interrupted. I love order and programs and schedules, and I love to know exactly what I'm going to do when, but my life doesn't work that way most of the time. When I'm at home, my husband and I have an ordered schedule. We get up at a certain time. We have X number of hours before breakfast. Before the phone rings and all of that, we eat lunch at exactly 12 o'clock, we eat supper at exactly 6 o'clock, unless there are interruptions. If I sit down saying, I am going to sit at this computer from 8 o'clock until 12 o'clock and nothing is going to interrupt me, then I'm dictating to God, am I not? I am not going to interrupt myself. I'm not going to go out and do something other than this. I set myself a task, which I am earnest and sincere about doing. But if the phone rings... If somebody comes who is badly in need, if I get something in the mail that has to be taken care of immediately, I figure that's God's will. That's his agenda. Be open to the will of God. My husband and I have been divorced since 1973. Now he wants to come back in my life. He says he is ready to accept the right way. He says he never stopped loving me when he touched my hand. I knew I still love him, too. What will I do now? That's a tough question, and I don't want to give what you will take to be the law of Sinai. There's a very good book by Jay Adams called Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage, which covers far more ground than I 
know anything about and much more than I can say this afternoon, but I would recommend that book, J. Adams, Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage. And I think, I may be misquoting him here, but I think he would say that if either party has been married in between the divorce and now, in other words, has been married to somebody else, a third party, the scripture would forbid your remarriage. The Old Testament does seem to forbid remarriage if there has been a divorce, uh, another marriage in between. If neither has been married, then there would be no question in my mind that you should work toward reconciliation. And that involves forgiveness, of course. Would you please address the dilemma of those of us who did not have our child's obedience by age 18 months? My son, age 19 months, seems almost unresponsive and spankings wooden spoon handle on bare butt. <laughs> I spank him over and over for the same offense, and yet he continues to repeat it. Any suggestions? I think I've covered what I can say about that. I think uh, you can read James 1. It says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. And it takes wisdom, divine wisdom, to raise a child. It takes divine wisdom to understand that particular child's needs. I can't tell you what to do, but I believe God can. Study the child. See if you can figure out what it is about him. Maybe he's like me and just so stubborn that it doesn't make any difference how, long, how many times you spank him. He doesn't want you to be right. And he is going to do his own thing, and he's going to prove to you that you can't hurt him. But... There, may, there is some way that you can get to him, and if there was one thing I hated, it was to be sent to bed early. I just de despised that, and I hated being sat on a chair, and I remember sitting on a chair in a corner for several hours because I would not say I was sorry about something. So just pray about it, and if the child is 19 months, then I would say that the best thing is is some kind of uh, physical punishment, not if a spanking doesn't work, then put him in his room alone or something like that. Were you not upset at all with God when Jim Elliot was taken at such a young age? That strikes me as just a little bit amusing to say upset with God is sort of the understatement of the year. And yet, I have to say that I really don't think that I was ever angry at God for the, the very simple reason that I did believe God still loved me. I never had any doubt that God loved me and did know what he was doing. So I could say exactly what I was thinking to God. I could say, Lord, I don't understand this. I don't like it. But you've never promised to explain yourself. You've only asked me to trust you. I'm going to trust you. I can't live without Jim, and yet I know that I can do all things with, with Christ, through Christ who strengthens me. Lord, you're going to have to strengthen me. You're going to have to walk with me through the valley of the shadow of, the de of death. And, of course, he has promised to do that. I read his promises back to him and said, Okay, Lord, I'm counting on this.
And one of the greatest healing factors was the work that I had to do. If you want to know the six steps that I had to go through, which I went through, which were helpful, ways in which God enabled me to accept the deaths of both of my husbands, it's in a little booklet called Facing the Death of Someone You Love. And I gave six steps there, which were healing to me. You have strong feelings and ideas about parenting. When will that book be published? <laughs> I don't think it's ever going to be published because if I did have the audacity to do such a thing, people would say, what do you know about it? You've only got one child. <laughs> is it right, what is a woman's responsibility when it comes to friendship with young men? I'm single. Should I always surrender my right to initiate? I would suggest that you read my book, Passion and Purity. I do believe, and also Let Me Be a Woman and the Mark of a Man, those, are, those last two books deal with masculinity and femininity. And I do really believe that it was God's order that a man is to be the initiator. Women are not to be the initiators. We are not to take the lead. It's like a dance. One has to lead and one has to follow. And if they both decide to lead, it ain't going to be no dance. So when a, when a woman initiates dating, she's giving that man a very loud message, very clear message. Number one, she's desperate. And number two, <laughs> number two, you ain't man enough to get me. I've got to get you. You know, you're really putting him down, putting down his masculinity. So I would say, yes, you surrender your right to initiate. You wait on God. Let God take care of bringing a man into your life. Do you think God wants single women to pray earnestly for a husband? Is that a selfish prayer? Many of our prayers are selfish in that they are, something, they are things we want for ourselves. But if the rule of your life is to do the will of God, then you're not really a totally selfish person, and it may not necessarily be a selfish prayer. I'm comforted by the words in Philippians 4, where we're told to bring our requests to God. Now, many of my requests are foolish, just as any little child's, because I am a child, and he is my Heavenly Father. I really don't know what's good for me. I'm asking for what looks like bread, but God knows it's a stone, and he doesn't want to give me a stone. But I still can bring my requests, my requests. And if a husband is what you want more than anything else in the world, surely there's nothing wrong with asking God for it. I did pray that God would give me Jim Elliott for a husband. I don't think I ever prayed for any other husband. I was amazed that God brought them into my life. I didn't get them. He gave them. But I prayed that the Lord would give me Jim someday, and God did that. But He took me through five and a half years of waiting, uncertainty, separation, silence. So as long as all of your prayers are ended with, but Lord, what I want more than anything else is your will. If a husband fits into your will, it would be just great, as far as I can see, Lord. But if it doesn't, then Lord, I'll take it. I will say what Mary said. Be it unto me according to thy word. I just want to ask 
two questions of you, now that I've answered all that I can, of yours. Has God said anything to you today? And if he has, what will you do about it? Those are questions I'd like you to face with him. Thank you, and God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. <laughs>